If your Bible naturally opens at the book of Psalms, just take a left, and the book right before it is the book of Job. Job is the story of how God treats his special friends in this world, quite different than that some people would say how you would receive divine favor. Job was the recipient of divine favor, as are all those who come to the Lord through Jesus Christ. Allow me to read for you the first chapter, and then we're going to go back through it through the sermon. So Job chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing the Lord, and turning away from evil. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, Perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to, his, to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Now on the day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, 
Another also came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head. And he fell to the ground and worshipped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Several years ago, in Britain, a loving Christian husband of four little children was killed in a random drive-by shooting. There's no explanation for why such a thing should happen. Totally random event. The wife was left with nothing. They were young, you see. And many were left to wonder why. Some uh, likely wondered, what was the sin that God was getting at and punishing? And who was it in? Was it in him? Was it in his wife? Because, you see, deep down, most of us believe that life works by an unwritten contract. And by life, I mean God. Do good and God will do good to you. Of course, such a sham, God is so easily toppled. A child gets lymphoma, or an older child raised in the Lord commits a crime and goes to jail. Things happen, and so many events occur throughout life. To be in that continual place of trying to trace out the sin and the reason for why such horrible things happen to people is to take the role of none other than, well, frankly, Satan. Or you could look at it and say, well, to try to figure out where the sin is in these people's lives is to try to take the role of God. Because there is that unwritten contract that we all buy into, that we all believe, that God rewards those who do good with good things. Peace, contentment, happiness, fulfillment, power, joy, finances, all kinds of wonderful and good things. But to the sinner, his hand is turned, and he creates for them a life lived between a rock and a hard place, makes for them great difficulties, Everything is difficult, of course, for them. Such thinking, of course, is our own shallowness, our own attempts to try to understand life from a predictability factor. The fact is, of course, that in reality it is the wicked who are often at ease, whose bellies are fat, whose lives are smooth, and who get the breaks. 
And very often those who are the good, the just, and the upright are those who have some of the greatest sufferings in this world and in this life. It goes against the contract. The contract that we're all raised with. Now this isn't what my message is about, but I'm just going to mention it. The reason why that's in all of our hearts is because at heart we're all legalists. We're all legalists and we want things to work by a set of rules. Because in our hearts, the one thing that we do not want is for us to be loved by God for his own reasons, but because he looks inside of us and sees something wonderful and good and therefore says, I need to reward that. And so we end up being the reason for why God blesses us. And of course, the antidote and the death to that is the cross of Jesus Christ. We'll look at that a little bit later. For right now, I just want to take you back to the text. And I want you to think about this, these words in chapter 1 as maybe you're evaluating your own suffering this morning or maybe you're thinking about someone else in your life or maybe there are sufferings just right around the corner for you in your life that you have no idea about today or maybe you're just coming out of a trial. Anyway, either way, whatever it's working for you, maybe you're right now in the in the lap of immense blessing. Maybe you just got engaged and everything is great in life and so happy and thrilling and everything in the future is glorious and wonderful or maybe you just lost a child. All of those kind of things are encompassed in the life that we live as people. And as we look at the life of Job and as we contemplate who God himself is this morning, Let's take a closer look at some, maybe some thoughts that we have inside that are either increasing our sufferings because we're misunderstanding God or prepare us for future sufferings that may come, okay? So let's go back to verse 1. Look there. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name is Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. What I want you to notice in this verse is the word God, the title for God. Elohim is the Hebrew word. It's the most used name for God in the entire Bible. It really means the Almighty One, the one who is absolutely powerful over all of life, over all people, all events, everyone's life that has been written, everyone's life that is lived though the tapestry of whatever events occur in their life and how that intersects with so many different events, all things are under the sovereign control of this particular one mentioned right here in verse 1. We, by familiarity, read the word God and move on, but we take a pause this morning because that is the name of the Almighty One. There is none other who may be called this particular name, Elohim. He is the Almighty One. He is Almighty. He's Almighty over all other deities. He's Almighty over the affairs of men. And yet, and even here in the book of Job, as in life, this Almighty One hides Himself from men, even hides Himself from those who suffer. And this to us is a great difficulty for us who are believers. As Isaiah the prophet says in chapter 45, truly you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, Savior. 
It's mentioned a number of times. It's also one of the issues that is being dealt with in the very book of Job itself. In Job 13, 24, Job says, Why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? Job, under the thick of the sufferings that go on in this book. At the end of the book, Elihu, the young man, comes along and provides counsel to Job and his three friends. And he says this, When God hides his face, who then can behold him? In other words, if when he chooses to hide himself from you, no matter what you're going through, there is no power within you to hide, to actually find him and reveal him and get him open to you. You are in that state by his choosing, even as Job will be in the book of Job. This reality then that this almighty God who controls your life All that there is inside you, all that there is outside of you, also can hide himself from you is a great and difficult reality for us. So many are the machinations of our hearts and our worshiping souls that we desire and yearn to figure out how to get God to appear at our timetable in the manner that we want. So many folks end up exchanging a genuine worship for God for merely what's a few emotions on the side that are tantalizing for a while, but then by Sunday afternoon, they wash away, and it's back to the normal rigmarole, humdrum of life. Because they aren't worshiping God, they're yearning for some manifestation of a God who will make them feel a certain way, a certain form of acceptance, a certain way that they can feel comfortable once again. And now in the book of Job, we encounter this almighty deity, the God of all, who can take life and make it so extremely painful, so extremely hard. But here is what you get in return for that, my beloved friends. God will reveal himself to you. God reveals himself to you even in your sufferings, especially the form of sufferings that are really not your fault undeserved sufferings, kind of sufferings that Jesus Christ had from start to finish. None of his were deserved. And so we come then to this glorious God. I want you to drop down to verse 6 and notice something else about him. In the middle of verse 6, he's called the Lord. That's his personal revealing name. Yahweh is the Hebrew In verse 6, there's this day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Now, the sons of God are angels, and they're here presenting themselves in council, both good and evil angels, before the Lord. Now, what's interesting about this verse is that the word Lord is not how God relates to angels, both good and evil. The name Lord is how he relates to his people. It's the name of his own revealing character, the faithful God, the covenant-keeping God, the kind God, the God of loving kindness, the God of mercies eternal, the God who is intimate with your suffering, the God who dwells with you when you're suffering. So now when you read verse 6, it's no longer necessarily this aloof, up-in-heaven verse. 
Oh, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves, but it wasn't without reference to us because they came to present themselves to who? Yahweh, his personal name. And then do you see the next name in the verse? Spit on it, Satan. The word in the Hebrew simply means adversary. And that's really the way even some translations translate it that way. He is the Satan in the ancient Hebrew language. Here just transliterated for us, just keep his name Satan. But the word means an adversary, and that is who he is presented to you as. And his role in your sufferings, you'll never be able to trace him out or his minions who do his will. But he is there in some form, in all suffering, and especially there in undeserved sufferings. And Satan, it says in verse 6, came among them. He's the preeminent evil adversary. So interesting. So, what do we learn from verse 6? Okay, there is invisible realities that relate to human suffering. They're invisible to us, and they will even have the effect of God hiding Himself for a season. And they are led by an evil adversary who is one of these sons of God. That would be angelic hosts again. But we are to know in verse 6 that this is a God of comfort. Though this seems so high, and you can imagine to the ancient Israelite or to the, to the ancient people, that these deities were mercurial. They just did whatever they wanted to do without any reference to right or wrong. They just served their own agendas. Maybe in some sense that's true. And they afflict the sons of men, and they do all kinds of evil things. And of course you know how people throughout the worlds and throughout the ages have thought about these deities and how to serve them. But you and I are told in the Word of God that they had to come before the Lord the Lord. That's the triune God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who is intimate and kind and merciful and all-powerful. So verse 6 is a refuge verse because they come before the Lord. So whatever's going to happen, it's okay. Ultimately, it's okay. Whatever suffering happens to Job, ultimately, it's okay Though he certainly won't see it that way until the end of the book, will he? If you know the book of Job, you know the kind of circumstances he's going to go through in this book. Chapter 1 is the introduction. And the sufferings are extreme. It's only going to grow and grow and grow. And he has no idea that these sons of God have presented themselves before the Lord. And that Satan in particular has an agenda that we need to look at right now. Verse 7. The Lord said to Satan... From where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on earth. And now this repeats verse 1. A blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house on all that he has? On every side, you have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. 
but put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. And then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Wow. He just brings about an accusation against Job. Accusation after accusation. But there is a subtle subplot going on here that we might miss. It's seen by examining that word Lord again and how it's used all throughout this text. The reason why that becomes important is because the word Lord, after chapter 2, will only be used one more time in the entire book, if I'm not mistaken, at least maybe a little bit at the end. But throughout the middle part of the book, when the sufferings are the most intense, the covenant-keeping name of God, the merciful name of God, by which he draws his people close to him, by which he, he suckers them to find faith and trust in him, will be abandoned, part of his hiding nature. But here, every time Satan proposes one thing, it's the Lord who directs and redirects. So that ultimately, the ultimate accusation is not really against Job, but it's against the Lord. It's against your God, believer. It is against the very one who has been so merciful and kind to Job. And Job's success in life is a cause for why he needs to be sifted, why he needs to be hurt, punished, according to Satan. After all, he has so much, Satan basically says. You've put a hedge around him. You may have blessed all the work of his hands. He's rich. He needs to be punished obviously. And of course, then Satan says, but all you have to do is touch what he has and he'll curse you to your face. You see the ultimate accusation against God? God, the only reason people would ever worship you is because you give them what they want. But nobody would ever worship you for who you are, especially when you touch what they have. They're going to grow angry with you and they're going to curse you. They're going to hate you and despise you, which of course is Satan's ultimate critique of God. You didn't give me enough, he says, of what I wanted, and so you're an evil God. Interesting, isn't it? Well, fact is, is that if you think that Job would ever deserve these kind of trials, hey, we'd be wrong, wouldn't we? Look at how good this man was. Let your eyes drop back to verse 1. It says there that he was four things, blameless, upright, fearing God, running away from evil. It says at the end of the book, that he lived until he was 140 years old. And you'll notice back in verse 1, it also says he lived in the land of Uz. I don't know where Uz was. It was probably modern-day Jordan or Edom, or some of those areas, Saudi Arabia, perhaps probably not so far, but he's called the land of the east, and, and it's mentioned a couple of other times in the Bible. East of the promised land. If you know your maps in your head, it's east of modern-day Israel. And so this occurs then around the time of Abraham. When Abraham lived, this occurrence, it's before the nation of Israel, and so there isn't the nation in the land with the Levitical priests making sacrifices and the structured worship under the Mosaic economy. No, this, this is back, at least in the time of Abraham, maybe a little before that. And we learned that Job was a better man than you or I. He's blameless. That speaks of his genuineness, his authenticity, his personal 
integrity. He's upright in verse 1. That talks about how he treats people, how he treats men, how he treats workers, how he treats women, how he treats girls. He's good and he's fair. It talks about his piety. It mentions that he's fearing God. He has a tender heart to God and to what God has revealed about himself in Scripture. And lastly, in verse 1, he is called turning away from evil. He didn't involve himself in sinful practices like sexual immorality or things like gambling. He didn't even mistreat his slaves. And if you read the passage, if you looked at it earlier, over and over again, in every situation that occurred except for the last when a tragedy happened, more and more servants were killed. This man, according to verse 3, had many, many servants, very many servants. Man was great. In fact, according to what? Verse 2. Here's his first mention of greatness seven sons and three daughters. Hey, such a deal. To the Jewish reader, ten children, seven sons. And look at the possessions that the man owned in verse 3. That's ridiculous. 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen. It was good eating in his house, right? Amazing. 500 female donkeys. That, those are beasts of burden. Those are the ones that do the work every day because they're really not worth much else. Man, oh, he's such, a, he's such a great guy. He's not a nomad. He's a rich man. He has, he has land and possessions, flocks and herds, and he's growing crops and he is one wealthy guy. He's got vast business holdings. And then you come to this. You come to his anxiety in verses 4 and 5. Remember that? His sons used to go there in verse 4 and hold a feast in the house, each one on his day, probably birthday. They'd send and invite their three daughters to eat and drink with them. Look at his anxiety. When the days of feasting completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning, offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. Because he said in his own heart, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts, and thus Job did continually. This is a man anxious for the salvation of his children. And then we know what happens from there, right? His life comes crashing down. The lead adversary comes and uses it all against Job, and he, as he does against all those who love the Lord. And this Satan, this adversary, gains the ear of the Almighty God in this heavenly council. It's tough for us to understand, I think, oh, this reality that God rules and that he has this heavenly counsel, that he allows evil princes of the spiritual realm to appear before him and to make accusation. Why would God even open himself up to that? Why not just rule and reign over all things? And just totally dictate everything that goes on. Why even have this give and take back and forth with a being as malevolent as Satan, as despicable as Satan, as simply an instrument of, of agony and suffering to God's own people? Why not just obliterate Satan and remove him from existence? Why would you even let him exist, much less come before you and then be able to carry out such evil plans? Well, 
God has something to prove because he's the one who's going to be ultimately tested. Ultimately. And salvation proves this. God takes evil and sin and redeems it. This is what all of our thinking when we say, well, the person got this bad thing to happen to them because they sinned, and the reason why they got something good to happen to them is because they did good. So if something bad happens to somebody, it was just God punishing some secret sin. Why all of that is worthless because it doesn't take into account that God loves to redeem. God is gracious. God is merciful. And if he had wanted to and had set up a universe by which everything was just pure law, by which if you do good, good happens. If you do bad, bad happens. There's no other way. It's inflexible. There is no redemption. There is no forgiveness. There is no loving kindness. There is no mercy. You sin, you die, goodbye. But instead, you have this overwhelming God of incredible love and mercy and compassion who uses great sin, great evil, and greatly malevolent beings to prove himself to you. He didn't have to prove himself to himself. (laughs) He's chosen to give you the life you've had, to give you the sufferings that you've had, to give you the pains that you've had, to give you the agonies that you've had and shall have in the future, in this world, to reveal himself to you and to train you out of that legalistic heart. He won't allow it to, to... sustain you through this life. He simply won't. He'll work it out of you through loving kindness. You see, it's, it's the way good governments work, and God's government is no different. He allows for adversaries. In our own government, in this country, we have a vast adversarial system against the president. You know who it is? And it's true with every president. It's the media. Their job in our country is to be the adversary to the president at least as long as I've been alive. And I remember my grandfather who hated Herbert Hoover. I mean, that goes back to the 1920s. And it was like, then, and there was always this adversarial press and there was always this relationship going on. In the British government, they do things a little differently. There they actually have someone who is responsible to become the adversary to the ruling, to the prime minister. And they're called the honorable adversary. And that's their job, is to oppose the prime minister because they understand a good government works with necessary adversarial powers. Now, with God, it's a little bit different. He uses adversary in order that he may further reveal the greatness of his own nature. Obviously, earthly governments have a different agenda. But with God, we need to understand that he is after something far greater than just proving that he's the all-powerful, that he is Elohim, He's also proving that he is the Lord Yahweh. Of course, he so mercifully does that in a manner that gives great glory for himself. Maybe we can understand this descent a little bit better by imagining a scenario, if you would with me, imagining that there was a Job who lived who was actually better than this Job we just learned about with all of his great attributes, a Job who is sinless. And one day, Satan enters into the heavenly council And as he goes there, there's a stream of fire coming out from a throne. And on that throne sits the Ancient of Days, dressed in white, 
And he is so pure and white, you can't even look upon him. And around him are thrones and thrones and thrones. But there is one particular throne right on the right hand of the Almighty and the Ancient of Days that is empty. And this river of fire flows out from it. Satan, as a welcome member of the Heavenly Council, who sits on one of those extra thrones in this scenario, gets up and dares to speak before the Almighty. As he stands up, the Almighty says to him, From where do you come? And Satan cagily says, From walking to and fro on the earth, meaning I've been seeking anyone who belongs to you in order that I may accuse them and hurt them and harm them. And the Almighty says back to Satan, Have you considered my servant Jesus? There is no one like him on earth. He's better than Job. He doesn't just turn away from evil. He redeems people trapped in their sins. He forgives sinners who are in their sins. <coughs> he preaches sermons that are all true. He forgives people, and he himself has nowhere to lay his head. His friends distrust him. His family rejects him. People everywhere hate him. Satan, have you considered my servant Jesus? And indeed, unimaginably, if you can imagine before the Lord, Yahweh, Satan gets permission to tempt Jesus even further. And so he not only tempts him from 40 days in the wilderness, but Satan is given, frankly, free reign during those three years of time to figure out every mechanism that he can throw at Jesus. And all he has to do for three years is to get Jesus to sin just once, just once. And if that will happen, then Jesus will fall and there will be no success to whatever plan it is that God is doing, as if Satan could understand the great mercies of God in the plan of redemption by sending the Son down to the earth. And as you know, the opposite happened. Glorious Lord Jesus refused to fall. Satan was soundly beaten, proving, by the way, the surpassing moral excellence of Jesus Christ. There's never been anyone, even in his category, because though tempted, to, though tempted so specifically and so uh, invariably and so constantly by, by Satan, yet he never, ever fell. No one was ever tempted like Jesus was tempted. And he suffered greatly, but all of his suffering was undeserved suffering. And undeserved suffering, as the book of Job teaches and as the life of Jesus teaches, undeserved suffering is redemptive suffering. Truly, only the Christian can have undeserved suffering. Every one of us who's not a Christian, all of our suffering can ultimately be traced back to the fact that we're born in Adam and that we've done wrong in God's universe. We've broken His holy law. So as a result, whatever sufferings come our way, there is an element at which we are responsible for that and culpable for it. But for all of you who have taken on Jesus Christ to be your Lord, who are under His covering, who are dressed in the white garments of redemption, who are loved by an eternal love, therefore, from God. For all of you who are in Christ, he has taken your guilt, your shame, and the punishment, due your sins fully and radically upon himself and borne those in himself so that you are no longer under the cloud of any more suspicion. 
you are set free, you are exonerated, you are forgiven, you are redeemed. Therefore, you in this life as a believer will have undeserved sufferings. You will have some sufferings as well that are deserved. As Peter says, if you, when you do what is wrong and you suffer for it, you endure harsh treatment, that doesn't find favor with God. But when you are doing what is right, just living as a believer, and all kinds of sufferings come your way, those, like the sufferings of your beloved Lord, are redemptive sufferings. Unjust sufferings, undeserved sufferings, are redemptive sufferings. In our Lord Jesus Christ, they were the sufferings, especially on the cross, by which he attained redemption for us. He received our sin on the cross that was not his own, and he suffered for them, and by that then we are forgiven. So amazing, so marvelous. Now, we ourselves will never be called to do that, but there will be times when you will be called to bear undeserved sufferings. Those will be redemptive in your life. They will enhance your spiritual walk with God. They will give you a greater reality and depth of sober, sobriety in this world. You will have a better viewpoint of people and events and God. And you will be better prepared for heaven as a result. But you yourself will be weaned further and further away from the practices of sin by the undeserved sufferings that you have. You will have a wiser and more understanding connection with the Holy Scriptures. And you will read them with more wide open eyes for the rest of your days. And you will see that God himself is so gracious, kind, and merciful and uses even undeserved sufferings for his own glory and for your own benefit. See, that's the reality. Even among us here this morning, there's all kinds of sufferings going on, some deserved, some undeserved. God's Word so graciously doesn't walk away from either kind, gives us all kinds of encouragements to take them. Hey, you know what? Let's take a little break from Job here. Why don't you stick your finger here in the book of Job and go back to the book of Exodus with me. I want you to take a a picture here of Moses, who is suffering. Exodus chapter 32, just at the very end. Exodus 32 is the account when the Israelites, Moses had gone up to the mountain. The Israelites, under the spiritual leadership of Aaron, (coughs) made the golden calf. Remember that? So at the end of 32, Moses comes back down. In verse 30, so I'm in Exodus 32.30. You with me? 32.30. Those of you with cell phones have no excuse. You should be there before the rest of us. On the next day, Moses said to the people, You yourselves have committed a great sin, and now I am going up to the Lord. This is him going back to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. (laughs) Wow. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, his people committed a great sin. And they've made a God of gold for themselves. But now, if you will, forgive their sin. And if not, blot me out of your book, which you've written. This is depression, friends. This is spiritual depression. Just don't even take me to heaven. Get rid of me altogether. Cast me away to hell. 33. The Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. But go now, lead the people where I told you. Behold, my angel will go before you. (coughs) Nevertheless, in the day when I punish... I will punish them for their sin. Then the Lord smote the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron had made. It's a very judgmental scene here going on. And it's not like Moses is at the top of his spiritual game, no? 
So drop down to the next chapter. Go to verse 15. 15. Actually, back in verse 14, the Lord says to Moses, My presence shall go with you. I will give you rest. Verse 15. Then he said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. For then how can it be that if I have found favor in your sight, I and your people, is it not by your going with us that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth? There's a lot of disbelief in God going on here with Moses. The job is too difficult. What you're asking is too difficult, too hard for me. Verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. That encourages Moses. Moses says in verse 18, I pray you, show me your glory. Did you ever ask God to show you his glory? He'll take you right to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and show you his godly son dying on a cross, the greatest display of God's glory in human history. But I get distracted. Verse 19, And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I show compassion. But then look at this, verse 20, but he said, you cannot see my face, the hiddenness of God again, for no man can see me and live. Wow. Now look what happens in chapter 34. And I want you to place yourself with Moses here, even though you're not supposed to. I want you to picture yourself in Moses. Great needs in his heart. He's really struggling with who God is. He kind of knows who God is. He kind of doesn't know who God is. He has faith in God, but then he's also exhibiting a lot of unbelief, like God couldn't be good. God couldn't be this good. I can't really trust him now because it's far too painful for me what's happening right now. That's what happens in, verse 30, in chapter 34. Now the Lord said to Moses, this is Moses up on the mountain, cut out for yourself two stone tablets like the former ones, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets which you shattered. Nice move, Moses. So be ready by morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain. I would like you to take a walk with Moses that morning. You yourself are invited to take a walk with Moses. Verse 3, though, says, No man is to come up with you, nor let any man be seen anywhere on the mountain. Even the flocks and the herds may not graze in front of that mountain. But you're being invited this morning to take a walk with Moses up the mountain. The sorrowing, hurting, agonizing, in a very difficult position, Moses. Verse 4. So he cut out two stone tablets like the former one. And Moses rose up early in the morning and went to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took two stone tablets in his hand. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Please visualize Jesus Christ taking a body and coming down and standing next to Moses in glory, not in his incarnate body like he had in which his glory was veiled, but with a body that allows for his effulgence to show forth, his Shekinah to show forth. So he stood there in verse 5. Verse 6, then the Lord passed by in front of him, in other words, Moses is looking at the backside and proclaimed, watch this, the Yahweh, the Yahweh Elohim, the Yahweh Almighty, compassionate and gracious. 
slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Are you with him? This is the Lord revealing himself to Moses. It's certainly true according to God is, but this is what Moses needs to know. This is truth about God that Moses needs to know to keep going in the midst of his sufferings. I'm not this angry, capricious, malevolent, accusing Satan who likes to sift people out. I am the almighty, merciful, coveted, keeping, kind, Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. It goes on, verse 7. Who keeps loving kindness for thousands. Who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. That kind of covers it all, by the way, from a Hebrew perspective. All kinds of sins. And then God refers to himself in the third person. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Almost like he says, this isn't really what I like to do. So I'll refer to myself in the third person. I didn't establish Israel. I didn't call you guys out of Egypt, Moses. And I didn't call you to myself so that I could <laughs> punish people. So he refers to himself in the third person. And then he talks about Israel specifically here in verse 7, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Beloved, that is only Israel. Israel was in a relationship, a covenant with God. That doesn't apply to us today. Your father's sins are not therefore punished on you or your children, nor are your sins punished on your children, nor are your children's sins punished on you. This is not like this is the way God runs the universe. No, this is with a specific people of Israel with whom he entered a specific covenant with. You can go back to Job, but, I, but are, you, are you there with Moses? Are you are you there? Do you see like when he's suffering, how God comes to him, stands next to him, lets him see the backside, and then proclaims the name of the Lord, the Lord God Almighty, gracious and compassionate, so that his heart is healed. And therefore he can withstand even the undeserved sufferings that he goes through in life. So, so hard now look at Job's sufferings. You ready? Verse 13. Now on the day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans, nomadic people, attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Doesn't that tell you the sovereignty of the event? Only one person gets to escape. And Job's like, wow, this is devastating. But at least he thought to himself, my children are okay. Look at verse 16. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, the fire of God fell from heaven. Don't you wish it said the fire of Satan? but it's the fire of God from heaven, lightning probably. Is God involved in the sufferings of Job? Yeah, yeah. 
forget this whole idea that God's hands are tied behind his back and he can never inflict suffering upon people, that he's not. He's in control of the weather. He's in control of all things. Anyways, verse 16, while he was still speaking, another also came and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And here's that sovereignty again. I alone have escaped to tell you. But you know what Job's thinking in his heart. Okay, okay, that's devastating, but okay, okay, my children, they're okay. Now verse 17. While he was still speaking, another also came and said the Chaldeans, that's a mighty powerful people who later would become great nation, the Chaldeans formed three bands. They were organized militarily, in other words, and they made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you, and Job thinking to himself, this is unbelievably devastating, but at least my precious children are okay. Because, you know, he likes sacrifices for them. He loves them. He cares for them. He prays for them continually. This is what he's about. But then comes the coup de grace. Verse 18. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating. Can you imagine Job's heart sinking at the mention of sons and daughters? They were eating and drinking wine, and their oldest brother says, Oh, no! Verse 19, and behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. That's like a tornado, isn't it? And it fell on the young people and they died and I alone have escaped to tell you. What now if you're Job? What now? All the other disasters have pretty much wiped out his business, wiped out his servants, wiped out his animals, but all those things related to a man's heart for his children are in a different category. So what does Job now have to live for? His wife? Um, Well, later on she's going to tell him to commit suicide. Chapter 2, curse God and die. Uh, Job takes a different tact here. He takes the tact of, well, I'm going to trust God and see how this all works out. I'm going to choose faith in the Lord and not fear. And that's what you're going to see. And it's a genuine response. It's painful response, but it's a genuine response of just trust in the Lord. No, No shallow faith here, right? Verse 20, Then Job arose, and tore his robe and shaved his head. And he fell to the ground and stuck a sword in his belly, right? Boy, this, what a place for Harry Carey. Wow. But no. He knew who God was. He worshiped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord, the covenant-keeping, merciful God, Gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Wow. You think God was pleased with Job at that moment? Of course he was. Was Job not God's special friend? Oh, very special. He was a better friend to God than Moses was. He was a better friend to God than Adam was. 
He was a better friend of God than Abraham was, and Abraham was called the friend of God. Man. You know, for several months now, people have been debating the words of a song. We all know the song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. The words in the song go like this, The Father Turns His Face Away. Somebody wrote an article on that. They said at 3 o'clock that dark Friday afternoon, the Father turned His face away, and the ancient eternal fellowship between Father and Son was broken as divine wrath rained down like a million Sodoms and Gomorrahs. In the terror and agony of it all, Jesus cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But the fact is, is that the Father was never, ever more pleased with the Son than He was on the cross. The cross was the ultimate act of obedience of Jesus to the Father. It was obedience to the point of death. The cross was when the Father could best say, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hey, if the Old Testament sacrifices were a sweet, savoring aroma, how much better was the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to the Lord? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2 says, Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Because in Christ we learn about undeserved sufferings for redemptive purposes. We see it here in Job in a human form. We see the amazing reality of a man who has suffered unjustly and yet comes to bless God. But with Jesus, it's even better. Father didn't turn his face away from the Son. He rather looked full on at the Son as he was on the cross. He wasn't disgusted with his Son, though he constituted the Son to be sin. He didn't make the Son sin itself. He never sinned, and He never became sin. He was always the Holy Son of God. But God imputed to Him the iniquity of us all. The Father never turned His face away, and He expressed there the Father did His love toward us. And so He looked at the Son, and He laid our sin on the Son. And the tragic terror of our personal sin, God loved us and redeemed us in great suffering and agony of soul. The Father looked upon the Son and was thoroughly well pleased in everything that the Son was doing and everything that the Son had and in every act and murmur of faith out of the Son's lips on the cross. The reality is, is that never was there a time ever in all eternity when God the Father didn't love the Son any better than He did when the Son was on the cross. As Jesus is hanging on the cross in the depth of all of His misery and sorrow and pain, the Father looks upon Him. And there was never a moment of greater love between the Father and the Son because the Father was treating the Son exactly the way the Son wanted the Father to treat him. He wanted to go to the cross. He wanted your sin to be laid on him. That's why he came down from heaven. That's why he did everything he did, so that the Father would lay on him your sin. Could you see the love Can you see the majesty? 
Oh, how far away this is from the idea that the good get the good and the bad get the bad. This is so different. This is the bad get the best. They get the love of the Father and the Son in the midst of the tragic terror of sin so that you, beloved, may confidently say, the Lord gave and the Lord take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Recently, a Facebook friend posted this. He said this, Our nephew, Lucas Kent Bays, came into this world two days earlier than expected, felt the warm embrace of a family that loved him wholeheartedly, experienced life for six and a half hours, accomplished all that God had for him, made his family proud, and went home to be with the Lord. The Lord gave, the Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Echoing those final words of Job. Sick and dying children. Random acts of violence that take away a good man from a young family. Can all these things be reconciled? You bet. The Lord, gracious and compassionate, rules over all of life. And does that which is wise and ultimately glorious, full face on. Let's pray. And Father in heaven, you've revealed so much in your word about who you are. Oh, that our life can be lived in the midst of even great and undeserved suffering with great faith and confidence in who you are. We are dust, and to dust we shall return. But you are God, you are the Lord, the Almighty, so great, compassionate, and merciful to send your Son to lay on him our sin, for him to take it in love with you. Thank you, Lord. We bless you this Lord's Day. In Jesus' name, amen. To the prize before us, soon his beauty will behold. 